Thank you, Brian, for your warm welcome. Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be back with you in Dundonald. And uh, I want to bring you greetings uh, from your brothers and sisters in Ballymoney Baptist, where your pastor, Richard, of course, uh, was a student assistant, I think it was, and he's very well known uh, to us as a congregation. And so uh, we trust that the Lord is really blessing Richard. We know he is and yourselves uh, at this particular time. So it's a pleasure for Sarah and I to be with you, and for me especially, uh, to be able to bring you something from God's Word. So if you have your Bible, could you turn please to uh, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to read uh, chapter 1 together. We're really going to look just at the last two verses, one of Paul's prayers to a church that he established under God a church that has been doing well uh, from its inception, and yet it's a church, of course, like all churches, that needs to keep pressing on uh, in the gospel and in prayer especially, and we're going to think about that prayer, but we'll read the entire chapter uh, together. So let's hear the word of God. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we come to think about it. Our Father in heaven, we know that you are a creating God and a God who sustains our lives day by day, but we rejoice that you're also a speaking God, not simply through creation and our conscience, but specifically through your word. We thank you, O God, that you have communicated truth to us concerning yourself and ourselves 
and the gospel of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you will give us ears to hear and that it might find a place in our hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you think about Paul's prayer, and it was E.M. Bounds, who is very well known for writing, especially on the subject of prayer, who once wrote, Prayer honors God, exalts his being, adores his providence, secures his aid. And as the Lord's people, of course, we believe in prayer, don't we? We understand that in God's kingdom, progress made always depends on prayers offered. Because we pray to a faithful God who calls us, his people, to pray and who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine when we come to him in prayer. And so we want to spend a little while this morning looking at this prayer that Paul made for the Thessalonian uh, believers. But first of all, I think we should paint in the background and, and set the scene into which Paul prays. It was Sarah who once told me, we were having a conversation one day um, about prayer. She said, you don't pray in a vacuum. And of course, she's right, that's very true. She's my wife, of course she's right, but it is very true, isn't it? You never pray in a vacuum. You always pray, or you always ought to pray, in light of certain needs and certain circumstances. And this is what we find here with the Apostle Paul. This contextualized, informed kind of praying is exactly what we see here in his second letter to the Thessalonians. He begins in verse 11 by saying, to this end, or with this in mind, some translations have it, to this end, we always pray for you. Well, to what end? With what in mind? Well, it's really the, the things that he mentions in verses 3 to 10. They help to shape the things that Paul goes on to pray for. What are they? And can we identify with them? Well, first of all, uh, we see the praise that he offers in verses 3 to 4. This is the background to his prayer. Before going on to mention some other matters, it's right and proper, Paul says in verse 3, that we always ought to give thanks for you. And why is that? Because, as he says in verse 3, their faith is growing. Because their love is increasing. Because their steadfastness is, is inspiring. And Paul is very thankful for this in the life of this church. Because these are signs of grace, aren't they? in the lives of people who have been transformed by the gospel. And so we always ought in our churches never to forget to be thankful to God for the signs of grace that we see amongst ourselves as a fellowship of his people. Secondly, we also see in verses 5 to 10 the promise he mentions because a key theme running through Paul's mind at this point, early part of the letter, is something which he uses here to encourage these persecuted Christians. And it's this, God is just, he says, 
in verse 6. In other words, you might be wrestling with that at times whenever things are tough. But I'm telling you, Paul says, God is just. And as a result of that, there are a few matters that you can be sure of in life. First of all, verses 5 and 10, there will be a reward for faithfulness. In verses 6, 8, and 9, he says, there will be a repayment for wickedness. And then in verses 7 and 10, he says, there will be righteous judgment whenever the Lord returns. God will pay back some, he's saying, and he will give relief to others when Jesus is revealed and, and comes to be glorified in his holy people. So this is what Paul understands and communicates early on. And so it's to this end, he said, having made these comments, to this end, he says, we always pray for you. And so this brings us to the prayer that he offers in verses 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you, he says, that our God may count you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have two petitions and one purpose. But before we get into those, I'd like to draw your attention to a key word in verse 11, a word that I, I pray and I trust is a mark of your corporate life uh, together, a word that includes both the idea of desiring and the idea of discerning the very thing that is desirable. And it's this word translated in the ESV as resolve. It's a key word, resolve. In other words, Paul is praying that these Thessalonian Christians, that all Christians might understand that it is their duty to seek the power of God in order that they might fulfill their godly resolves. It is their duty to energetically give themselves wholeheartedly to know God's will and to resolve to do it in the power of God's spirit. It's a key word. Well, with all that being said, then let's turn, first of all, to, to Paul's petitions. As I said, there are two of them. Uh, first of all, at the beginning of verse 11, becoming worthy of God's call. This is what he prays for. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Now, as you know, some writers in the New Testament, for them, the word used for calling is the same as that used for invitation. And so we read, for instance, in Matthew 22, verse 14, for many are called, or, or many are invited, but few are chosen. But in Paul's epistles, those who are called by God are actually those who have been saved, those who belong to God. As we see, for instance, in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 30. And so, Paul is not praying that these Thessalonians might somehow or other become worthy to be called. They're already Christians, aren't they? They've been called. He's now praying, in fact, that they might live up 
to that calling. They've, they've been saved. They belong to the Lord. They've been called. It's now that they might live up to that calling, that they might increasingly become what they already are. Children of the living God who bear the family likeness and in doing so, please their heavenly Father who counts them worthy of his calling. Worthy in the sense of, of being fitting, proper and appropriate. Not deserving or merited. Now if this is a priority for God who inspires Paul to record it in this letter, then it clearly teaches us that our main concern in our praying ought not to be that we ourselves or those around us should become popular or brilliant or wealthy or successful, healthy, happy and problem free and so on. No, Paul seems to be teaching us that our prayers ought to be shaped by what he's just mentioned, for instance, in verses 3 through to 10, where he talks about signs of grace in people's lives as they live in the light of that great day to come when Christ will return to judge the world. Paul is fully aware as he prays that these Thessalonian Christians, that all Christians will one day, having lived their lives on the earth, have to give an account to God who will ask, what have you done with the salvation that I gave you? How have you lived up to the calling that you received? My friends, is this not the big issue for all of us who claim to be disciples of the Lord Jesus? 20 or 30 million years from now, will it really matter what grade you received in your exams? It's not an unimportant subject, but 20 or 30 million years from now in heaven, will it really matter that much? Will it really matter how much money you earned in your career? Will it really matter who won the World Cup in 2022 or who won the Premier League in 2023? Will these things really matter? Surely not all that will matter. It's what you did with God and his gospel. All that will matter was, is what you did with the life that he gave you on the earth. All that will matter is how he has assessed it. And this is why Paul is driven to prayer. Because he knows that just like, like him, these Thessalonian Christians, you and I haven't got the strength or the discipline to achieve this from God. But you notice how he actually puts it in verse 11. He prays that God may make you worthy of his calling. Paul, you see, is not simply asking the Thessalonians to try harder. He's asking God to so work in their lives that they will be made to be worthy of his calling, that they will be made to be increasingly holy in life. Christ-like, spirit-filled sons and daughters. And in praying like this, Paul is clearly a man who understands that he needs to pray about big issues in life. For you here in Dundonald, as 
one church year, you might say, is coming to an end as you, as you live out the, the particular aspects of, of the summer season and as a new church year lies ahead of you in September, will you resolve in your heart like never before to pray big prayers because you believe in a big God, do you not? He is well able to answer all of your prayers. Secondly then, being fruitful in God's work. Verses, verse 11b, we might say at the end of verse 11. Paul says, to this end we always pray for you, that our God, he goes on to say, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So Paul's prayed about being worthy of the calling that you have received. And now he's, he's praying about being fruitful in the work that God has, has given you. Elsewhere, Paul wrote that, in Philippians 2 actually, that it is God himself who is at work within us, both to will and to act according to his good purpose. And he's referring there to, to God's purposes. But here in 2 Thessalonians uh, 1 verse 11, he includes our purposes for God. And he asked that, that God might empower us as his people in our good deeds and works of faith. So we need to remind ourselves, don't we, that, that seeking the power of God to fulfill our good resolves can never mean that we don't have to truly resolve to use our willpower in life. It, it's really encouraging to hear how you're planning as a church to, to pray for the events that are coming up in the summer. And you know why you're doing that, because you know that, that you depend on the Lord to bring blessing and to give grace to, to, to serve him. But seeking the power of God to fulfill our good resolves can never mean that we don't have to truly resolve within ourselves to serve him. The experience of God's power never negates the engagement of our will. We are co-workers with Christ, aren't we? How does Peter put it in his second epistle? He says in chapter 1, He, that is God, has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by human desires. And then he goes on to say, for this very reason, make every effort, resolve, we might say, to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and brotherly kindness, and love. For, he says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Peter's perspective. It's actually the same perspective as Paul. As Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, uh, with reference to 2 Peter and this passage I've just read to you, he puts it like this. He says, God gives you a farm with all the resources you need at your disposal. Then he calls you to farm. And as you farm, he produces a harvest in your life and in the life of others. 
Well, this is the very essence of being a new creature, isn't it? And that's what Paul is referring to here. That conversion to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will result. It will result. It's not a maybe. It will result if you've genuinely been converted in every resolve for good, he says, and every work of faith. It will result in people developing a completely new set of goals for their lives. Goals and purposes which are decidedly Christian, gospel-focused, Christ-exalting, different from the kind of goals that you had before. And so now all of a sudden, these Thessalonians have become Christians, or whenever you became a Christian, all of a sudden, you're thinking to yourself, they're thinking and they're praying, Lord, who can I witness to today? And how can I go about it? I wasn't asking that question 30 years ago until I was converted. But the day after I was converted, I was asking that question every day. Who can I witness to, Lord? Who can I tell about what you have done for me and can do for them? That's what happens when you become a new creature in Christ. You've got new goals and purposes in your life, things that you resolve you want to do for God. And you start praying like that. Lord, how can I be a humble servant in my church and in my community? Open your word to me, Lord, and grant me the power of your spirit uh, to, to preach it faithfully on a Sunday, in Sunday school or in the pulpit or whatever else. Help us as a church family, Lord, to be salt and light and this community. All of a sudden, You've got different goals in life, haven't you? Different purposes, different aims. And Paul's highlighting the fact that it's admirable to have good purposes and acts of faith. He prays that Christians might be like this. People with get up and go. People with godly initiative. People who are gospel entrepreneurs. But he also goes way beyond that in his prayer, assuming that we will resolve to develop spiritually wholesome goals. He now prays that the Lord will take these purposes and so work in them by his power that they will bring forth God-glorifying fruit. Now, when we look at Paul's ministry, we see this, don't we? We see this dependence uh, upon God and we see this Godly resolve, working in tandem together. And when we look at the ministry of Paul, for instance, in the book of Acts, we see that he achieved great things under God, didn't he? His ministry literally changed the world. His preaching set a fire ablaze around the Mediterranean basin, turning the world of his day upside down. But he knew, whenever we read about Paul, don't we, we can clearly see that he knew and understood that without God's help, it would be an impossible task. And because he knew that, he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. He recognized this direct link between his preaching and his praying. That they were two sides of the one coin. He was acutely aware, as, as you and I, as we all must be, that unless the Lord builds a house, it builders labor in vain. Unless God works in you 
and through you, unless he empowers your efforts, whether it be preaching and teaching, whether it be pastoring and ministering in some way, whether it be in your daily living and witnessing, unless God empowers you, unless God is with you and working in you and through you, then nothing will amount to anything. You can be busy as a bee, but if God is not with you, it will amount to nothing spiritually. And that's why Paul, as he thinks of every resolve for good and every work of faith, he makes sure to pray that God, in his almighty power, will be at work in the life of this church. Well, friends, I went online during the week and, and I read your church profile and I can see how busy you are on many different fronts for the Lord. And you're going to be very busy over the summer in particular ways, aren't you? When the buy team come and so on. But you know, don't you, that there is one thing that must always be kept front and center as you resolve to do good things for the Lord. You will need to go to the Lord. You will need the Lord to go with you. And you will always need to be praying for that, that God will go before you, that God will be working in and through you as you seek to serve him in this community. Understanding that progress made is always, always, always going to depend on prayers offered. So those are his two petitions. But what about the one purpose, if you like, of his prayer? What's the goal? And on what grounds? Well, he tells us in verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the ultimate purpose here? That we live worthy lives and fulfill every good purpose prompted by our faith? Definitely valuable ends to be praying for, aren't they? But these are not to be the ultimate goal of our prayers. We've got to pray about that. But there's something else greater we must pray for. The ultimate goal of our praying is the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know, no doubt, the deepest desire of your hearts here in Dundonald is that Jesus Christ be constantly praised. For, praised forever as a result of everything that you are seeking to do. So if when you sing in the pew or you play in the, the music group or you speak from the front or you visit the, seat, the sick or you serve in, in this way and, and another, if you do that with the secret desire that you might be praised, then you corrupt your salvation by putting your own glory before that of your Savior. And Paul knows that that is a tendency amongst us all as the Lord's people because we're fallen people. And so he prays that we might not seek to gain reputation for ourselves, that people might not think that we are the best thing since sliced bread. No, he prays that first and foremost, the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. In other words, that as people look at your life, as they see about how you go about your ministry, they will understand that your great statement above everything that you are and do is that he must increase and I must decrease. There must be more of Jesus and less of Andy. 
more of Jesus and less of you and all that you do for him. The name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, Paul prays. And you and him. Now that's interesting, isn't it? We're not to seek glory for ourselves, but we are to pray for the glorification of other Christians. Now you might be thinking, isn't that a contradiction, Andy? Well, no, not really, because Paul is ultimately thinking here of that time at the last day when the Christian will be made perfect in every way. He's thinking of what he said in Romans 8, that those whom God calls, he also justifies, and that he will one day ultimately glorify in heaven. And yet, here's a reality. Even in this lifetime, is it not true that we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory? There is such a thing as progressive sanctification. We're not to pray for our own glory. We're to pray that the Lord might be glorified, but we're also to pray that you might be increasingly made like the Lord Jesus. Progressive sanctification. What is that? It's God making you more like Jesus, not in order that you might receive honor and glory from men, but, but that it will go to the Lord Jesus himself for what he has done for you, is doing in you and through you right now and what he will one day do for you. When the life and witness of this in every church will have ceased. And so, as you see, Paul has really returned to his vision of the end, hasn't he? In his prayer. He's talking about it earlier, and now he's returned to it in his prayer. It creates in him a certain mindset, doesn't it? Which consequently shapes his praying in a particular way. He doesn't pray in a vacuum. Let me close with a story told by D.A. Carson uh, as he exegeted this particular prayer. He mentioned a story about a young woman called Florence Chadwick. And Florence was a long distance swimmer. And apparently in 1952, she attempted to swim from Catalina Island to mainland California, which was a distance of 22 miles. The weather apparently that day was foggy and it was chilly and she swam for 15 hours and then she was so tired and so exhausted she begged to be uh, taken out of the water. But her trainer urged her uh, to keep going as the shore wasn't very far away and so on. But she was exhausted and she finally stopped swimming and they had to pull her out. Shortly after she realized that she'd only been half a mile from the shore. And the next day she gave a news conference and she said, and I quote, I do not want to make excuses for myself. I am the one who asked to be pulled out. But I think that if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Two months later, she proved her point and she swam the distance. Brothers and sisters, at the heart of our praying must be a biblical vision. A vision of who God is. A vision of what he has done for us in Christ. A vision of who we are. A vision of where we are going and what we must resolve to do in the meantime until we reach the shore. 
You see, the job is not done, is it? That God has given you to do in your life individually and in your life corporately here in Dundonald. So you need to press on, the Bible says, towards the goal. Always giving yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Remembering that progress made will always depend on prayers offered. Because you pray to a God who is and who will build his church. And in praying, you honor your God and you follow the pattern of your Savior. So, will you live a God-empowered, purpose-driven life this week, throughout the summer, and into a new church year? grace of God, you certainly will if you keep your eyes on him. We're going to sing um, the words.